Hello friends, thanks for making time for us again. This week our guest is Frank Milan. Frank is one of those people that make you take a step back and feel incredibly grateful that somehow your paths have crossed. He's a man who's pushing forward, still feeling it all after a life that many of us probably couldn't even comprehend. Frank lost his brother to suicide and his sister and nephew were murdered in a fatal act of domestic abuse within a couple of years of each other. And since then, Frank has put the powerful energy that he says emerges as a result of injustice towards founding the Advocacy and Peer Support Group, AA, FDA, or Advocacy, Advocacy After Fatal Domestic Abuse. This organization has helped hundreds of families as they come to terms with fatal domestic abuse. This is an incredibly honest and raw conversation with a special human. Frank was awarded an MBA in 2019 for his exceptional work around domestic abuse advocacy and community building. And we hope this spreads awareness of domestic violence and reminds us just how much the human spirit can withstand with the help of a strong support system. I've linked the AAFDA website in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Listen, Seb and myself have been amazed by the work that you're doing, by, by some of the things that have happened to you in your life. And we said just before, Air, that it's it's almost a miracle that you're here doing what you're doing to this day. So we're we're very grateful. We're very grateful to Fiona for, for making this happen also, for being the, the, inter, the interlink here. Um, but yeah, no, we want to thank you. We really are grateful and, and so happy that you agreed to come on. Fiona um, really inspired me. She spoke at one of our early conferences and her story was truly amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. The, the, yeah, honestly. The, you know, so, sometimes, very often even, words don't do people or scenarios justice. And you, you could say every word under the sun about Fiona, but you can't, you can't, you can't get it. You can't pinpoint it because what she yeah what she did and the courage the the belief the faith all of that is just unbelievable it's immeasurable um listen frank uh, for there's a chance people are listening and they haven't listened to the fiona podcast and if that's the case could you tell us a bit about yourself could you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and yeah and, and what how you ended up doing what you're doing now Sure. Uh, I am Frank Milan, as they say in Ireland, as you say. I'm the chief executive and founder of AFTA, which stands for Advocacy After Fatal Domestic Abuse. And I set it up um, five years after my sister and nephew were murdered in domestic abuse. And um, I, I set that up to help other families uh, that would be in my position. And Sorry, sorry, Jim. And when you when someone says, and this is coming from a really um, just ignorant standpoint, but I just want to make sure we dot all um, dot all the I's and cross all the T's. But when you say fatal domestic abuse, does that mean that you know someone has lost their lives at the hands of someone who they lived with, or at the hands of someone who they knew? Is that is that what classes it as, as domestic fatal domestic abuse as a, as opposed to maybe I don't know being murdered by okay. a stranger, for example? Yes. Uh, uh, domestic homicide or fatal... Sorry, if I can just explain my... It was an accident. When I called it advocacy after fatal domestic abuse, I didn't realise, um, actually, uh, that that had much more meaning than I realised at the time in 2008 when I started it. Because there are many people that lose their life uh, by taking their own life when they are in positions of domestic abuse. It doesn't always mean that um, the domestic abuse was the single factor right. that caused it, but in some cases it may be. Uh-huh. And in fact, there is one man who's been convicted of manslaughter um, following the suicide of his ex-partner. He was nowhere near the scene, but the judge said it was your abuse that caused it. Right. So fatal domestic abuse could be any death in some way that could be traced back to domestic abuse. And it doesn't have to be intimate partner. It could be interfamilial. You know, there are, sadly, it seems to be mostly there are sons who kill their mothers, for example. Thanks for clearing that up, Frank. Uh, 
one thing that came up with me and said we're having a chat about this conversation yesterday was the the decision on your end that you wanted to and tell me if I'm wrong dedicate your life to this field um must have been so challenging and we I, I want you to talk uh, if you're if you if you're okay with that talk uh, about your sister Julia and, and your nephew William but I but I just w- wanted to first ask how chal- like how how do you find that working in this area on a daily basis for advocacy in this de- in this in this department is some sort of catharsis for for what happened to your sister and to your nephew because Seb and myself said yesterday like wow so many people would have had this happen to them and then they they couldn't go near the idea of of interacting with this again like they could they wouldn't be able to watch tv shows where there's murder they wouldn't be able to you know they would avoid avoid it at all costs almost because particularly when it was someone so close to you I guess I would like to know your relationship with the work that you're doing now and whether it's been, I imagine it's so challenging, but I imagine, tell me if I'm wrong, if there's some sort of, maybe not even peace, but some sort of, um, this is what I should be doing. This is, this is, this feels right. Yeah. And when you say dedicated, uh, that's not how I see it. What, what, I had no choice in a way, in the sense that um, the work I was doing, um, it just felt meaningless. And I I was starting to make connections with people in the domestic abuse sector, beginning to read about it, something that I didn't do before the murders. And, um, you know, I I felt that I had to be involved. There was a a bit of feeling of compulsion. it felt meaningful to wake up every day and be doing something so serious and, and to try to do it as well as I could. And, I, you know, I met, it brought me in touch with lots of really inspiring people. I just did not have my heart in the work that I was doing before, which was just had no more meaning for me, I'm afraid. And, you know, I meet lots of family members who change their employment after murders. Yeah, it's something that Jim and I, Sorry, Jim. Sorry, I, I just it's something that Jim and I have um, we've struggled with, and we recently did a podcast um, with Cadam Adam Starr about the meaning of life, and yeah, I think a lot of us struggle with it. But of course, when you have something so so stark, so I don't know how you put it into words that happen to you, where you know you really are seeing the value of life um, and how perishable it can be. I can't, yeah, I can only imagine how that will kind of steer you into a place where you feel like whatever I was doing beforehand is, like you said, completely meaningless and I can't waste any more time, um, you know, just doing a a normal nine to five to pay the bills. And so I I really commend you for taking that step because a lot of us, including myself at the moment, to be honest, feel like we are probably just doing the nine to fives to pay the bills and you know, we're maybe trying to find those vocations and those ways to make our lives. And like you said, every day feel like you're doing something meaningful and something that actually changes the world for a better place. But yeah, like Jim said, I I just couldn't, I was just running over and over and over in my head yesterday. And I just thought, I don't know how someone who has had two family members, let alone one, two, um, um, be murdered, um, and then put themselves in a scenario whereby they're going to have constant triggers um, and everything. I can imagine that everything in some way, shape or form reminds you of, you know, what happened. And that's not to say that you would have forgot had you gone uh, and flew off into the, into the jungle and no one had ever seen Frank, Frank Milan again. But you know, there's, there's ways that we, we try to protect ourselves as humans. Um, and, I wanted to ask, um, how did you, you know, we all, we've all experienced loss at some point in our lives. It's just, a, it's a nature of life. Um, but there's ways, you know, a lot of us, we can kind of chalk it up to, oh, it's bad luck. You know, if you lose someone through 
cancer, for example, it's terrible. Don't get me wrong, but unfortunately, the statistics are that I think one in two of us will have cancer in our lifetimes, and or if you have a car crash, it's a terrible accident. But you can maybe, in your own mind, to try and find some level of peace, you can say, "Oh, it was an awful accident. I'm, it's terrible, but you know, it, that's life at the end of the day." But when when murder comes along, it feels that feels so unjust, such a an awful way to lose a person, and I can't imagine how how you come to peace, if at all. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk to us about that. How have you managed to get yourself in a mental state where you can actually face these troubles and, and be an advocate for others and, and, and not feel like you're in this massive torment still? There's a great energy caused by a feeling of injustice, as you say, and, and I, I put that into it. And, um, you know, I still have that because I read about other injustices and I meet other families and I can help them um, I can help them I mean my I feel that my biggest responsibility is to help families rejoin life I'd never call it normal life I just call it the life after what's happened but it's important to help families know that it can still be a good life I mean my family still has a good life and we can have a happy life um, it, you know, it would. It, it sometimes people can get a bit stuck trying to get information out of like, uh, 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 police or other authorities. Um, maybe they never get the information and they're speculating forever. Um, our job is to try and help them get that information, or if we can't get it, to help them understand that it's something they might have to work around and, and live with, but in some way to sort of grab what remains of life and um, have a good life. Uh, it seem, seems really important to do that. And um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, forgive me, but... No, of course. It, it One thing, you know, you talk about the injustice of it all, and I think a lot of people listening will... Um, obviously, they'll understand the, the the injustice of losing someone to murder. But yeah. the other part of it that you're talking about is also the injustice that you kind of felt um, that came from the police. And this is not to, I, you know, I don't want to make this a, a podcast where we bash the police or anything by it. And I know that's not your your stance at all. But for people who maybe aren't quite aware of maybe your the particular your particular situation, um, or maybe aren't aware of how you think they think oh well the only injustice in a murder is that the fact that someone was murdered and they kind of feel like that's what the, the the be all and end all of injustice could you kind of explain to us and shed some light on how in your case and maybe in other cases how maybe willingly or unwillingly the police can also add to that sense of injustice well first of all to start with a finding by louise casey who was the first ever victims commissioner and she found in a study of about 400 families um, that the journey through the criminal justice system was as traumatic as the bereavement itself. And I've always found that a really startling finding, you know, that it was as traumatic as the bereavement itself. So, you know, nobody set up the criminal justice system in order to traumatise families, but it does traumatise families. And, uh, you know, there are certain inequities, so it's very difficult to get... Um, legal aid for families at inquests, for example. So it's very difficult. The inquest can be the place where families can expect to get information and expect to, um, you know, get a close that one objective that they have, which keeps them on a kind of a hamster wheel of looking for more and more information. The inquest can help them get off that wheel by providing information, by revealing information to them. But sometimes you need a skilled lawyer to be able to achieve that for you and all of the agencies that come to the inquest the police probation social services etc they all have lawyers paid for out of the public purse but usually the family does not um so there are there are many difficulties uh, for families afterwards it, it's a new language they're thrust into a system with a new language they don't know their rights and opportunities they've got lots of people coming to see them this even control is taken from them. So murder is is the business of the state. Um, you know, the state is offended by murder as well, and it takes charge. So if you think about it in the in the criminal trial, there's a barrister for the state, and there's a barrister for the defence, but there isn't one for the victim. 
or the victim's family. You know, there's one for the crown, as they might say, and there's one for for the defence. It's not about a victim's story or the family's position. It's just about establishing guilt or otherwise in the in, you know in the, in the criminal trial. Thanks for clarifying that, Frank. Before we move on, I would love to hear a bit about your sister and your nephew and what kind of people they were and how they lived their life, you know? Thanks for asking that. My, my sister, Judy, was a health visitor and um, she was very supportive of me. But, uh, uh, a difficult time in my life she was extremely supportive of me very very loving and um you know uh hugely loving and good fun as well she had a great sense of humor and as they say where my parents came from an island a good bit of devilment you know mischief mischief and um and and will my nephew uh, a beautiful lad you know we had a really good fun relationship we um, he was a musician or, or a budding musician. We would try and write songs and have great fun with crazy songs and, you know, mad humour and uh, um, just, I just had some beautiful times in that company. That's beautiful. Thanks, Frank. I, I guess what, uh, what I'd like to ask you about is after after the murders, what 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 was i guess what was the thing that kept you going uh, how did you initially come to set up the organization did you have a support system uh, i'd love to know because as me and Sarah were saying we we all have a lot of challenges in our life but this is something huge that a lot of people maybe you know can't can't survive you know it is just so traumatic so heavy and I guess I, I'm sure the listeners would love to know what what helped you during this unbelievable arduous process. Many things. First of all, um, we were concerned that you know we had been telling the police about the danger to my sister. Uh, we didn't understand the danger uh, to Will, my nephew, um, and the police hadn't responded well at all. Can I put it that way? Um, and also on the night they had not responded, the night of the murders they had not responded well. So I was fueled by a sense of injustice. Um, we raised um, debates in Parliament about it. We got our MP involved. Um, you know, we got a good lobby of people to try and bring pressure um, uh, on the authorities to to reveal uh, what they'd been doing with the intelligence we'd been giving them uh, about the abuse, for example. So the sense of injustice was one of the main drivers for, for fueling me, if you like, um, and what, what enabled me to keep going. But also my family and friends, I have a loving, very close family, and, and uh, I don't think I could have done it without my family, quite frankly, uh, and, and friends. And, um, you know, we, we all played different roles. And I, I remember one of my sisters saying to me, look, Frank, I don't do anything on this campaign. I said, yes, you do, because every time I come visit you, you give me some of the best food I've ever had. And then I'm fired up for a few more days, you know. So everybody plays different roles. And then one of my brother-in-law played a kind of a research role and another sister uh, was looking at, you know, domestic abuse history. We, uh, and then some friends would do some work and we had a, we had a team. Uh, started to build a team, really. It was a, a team effort. Do you think that it brought the family closer? Yeah, we were pretty close and tactile. We were huggers and, you know, and um, but I think it did bring us closer, yeah. Oh, yeah, I wanted to... Did, are there ever days where... I don't know how to put this, but not that it feels like the wrong thing, but are there ever days where you feel like, I don't know, I don't, I, 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 maybe I've gone as far as I, ha I can go down here. I, I don't know if I have any more strength or any more will to go on i think i've maybe taken this as far as i can go or does that do you still feel energized and, and, and do you never feel that that feeling um i haven't really felt it yet i mean I'm, I'm a bit older now and uh less energy physically wise maybe than i did when i started but um 
but mentally um, I, I feel just as passionate. Um, the people I meet in the sector inspire me, the families I meet. I mean, I, you know, I meet families sometimes within weeks of um, these horrors happening or, or, you know, we've now got a big advocate team. I meet less of those families, but they, they're the ones that keep me inspired and, and keep me strong. And, um, and also the, the rate of domestic, fatal domestic abuse, so suicides and homicides and other types of deaths is so high that, you know, my family always said at the beginning that we don't feel we can walk away while we're witnessing something that's broken, a mm. broken system. And I, you know, we need to come up with something better and more powerful because if you think of the sort of resources and governmental responses to things like terrorism, we're not seeing that for domestic abuse at the same level. There's no COBRA meeting for a domestic homicide, even when it's uh, what's called a familicide, when the whole family's wiped out. But had that been a so-called terrorist attack, there might have been a COBRA meeting in, in government. And um, we don't see that for domestic homicides. And I think we need to raise the status of the crime of domestic abuse. It's so offensive, if you think about it, that the person who professes to love you is actually your terroriser, your tormentor, your controller. Mm. And, you know, it's hard for people to leave um, those individuals safely. Very, very, very difficult on many occasions. I'm really glad that you touched on that, Frank, because that was going to be my second question. I don't know if this is... I mean, Jim and I are too young to say back in the good old days, but um, I don't know if this is something that's uh, new or maybe this is just human nature and it's always been this way, but now with more media, it's become more obvious. But we always seem to... Whether it's sexual abuse, whether it's domestic abu um, abuse, whether it's fatal domestic abuse, mm -hmm. we kind of very often you see in the media we there's essences of uh, some some something ha the victim has a role to play here, and whilst they're the victim, there's they ha they share the guilt in some shape or form. You know, you see it with people, uh, ladies who've been raped, and it's like, well, what clothes were you wearing? And that should never. That shouldn't. That question should never be asked. For example, and you know, I mean, Fiona did a really great job of explaining. But for people who maybe haven't listened to the, to Fiona's um, episode, you know, you said that you were giving intelligence, for example, to the police about your sister's situation before, obviously, um, you know, it ended in murder. So, for some people who may be listening to this and thinking, well, if Frank knew, and if the, I assume then the family probably knew that she was being abused in some way, shape or form. How, how come she didn't manage to get out? How come she didn't manage to escape? How come she didn't manage to leave her tormentor? Um, you know, I'm not going to say it's her fault, but you know, and they start asking questions about her. You know, can you explain to some of these people who maybe have these questions in their head, how difficult it is and why, for example, you don't, you don't get out until unfortunately sometimes it is too late. It can be incredibly dangerous to leave an abusive relationship. You know, uh, there are some studies that say, you know, many people are killed within six weeks of leaving a dangerous relationship. Now, clearly, people do leave dangerous relationships and remain safe, but it can be extremely dangerous. Where do they go? Sometimes they've been denied access to accumulating funds or an education or an ability to have a job. If they're being coercively controlled, they might have been systematically denied that capability. It, they may not even speak the local language. They may have been denied access to learning that language. They've effectively been disenfranchised, if you like. Um, the perpetrator may find them. They may have children going to school. It would be easy to find that person. Many women say that they feel safer by being closer to their tormentor. So, I mean, it's, it's incredibly difficult to leave abusive relationships. It's simply not that easy. Frank, you mentioned the the fact that we don't really have a system to, to help victims of domestic abuse and, and fatal domestic abuse. Uh, can I ask, since you started the organization Advocacy After Fatal Domestic Abuse, do you, do you see progress? Do you see... Like, are we going in the right direction? I believe you started this in 2000 and, and 2008. Yes. Yeah. So 13 years, where are we? Yeah, we do. We, sorry, we, we do have a system. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, I think step change can be made in this rather than incremental change. 
but it requires will, it requires political will to say we need to really shove this along and raise its status. Um, so we have, for example, something that happened after my sister's murders with the introduction of what are called independent domestic violence advocates, who essentially keep people alive and keep people from being repeatedly abused. It's a great role. We have multi-agency risk assessment conferences looking at high-risk cases. There are all sorts of tools and initiatives going on, but it's still not enough because the rate of domestic homicide is a stubbornly recurring figure. Uh, the rate of suicide from domestic abuse, from all available evidence, is pretty strong indication that it's a higher number than the amount of homicides every week. Higher than homicide. And then there's other deaths, unexplained deaths, double drug deaths, deaths from being outside and exposed to hypothermia, what have you, having left out of relationships and died in some other ways. Um, so I don't know if we fully grasped the uh, prevalence and the way that domestic abuse is permeating the whole of society. Now, I remember when I first joined this sector and, uh, you know, I was just beginning to learn after the murders and I think I read a statistic that one in four women would, would experience domestic abuse in their lifetime. And I remember I'd be driving down the street saying, no, no, yes, no, 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 yes, no, 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 yes, you know, in my mind thinking every fourth house. So I don't know if society's um, willing enough to look at this. There's kind of myths around this. So, um, I mean, there's work done. I, I've written a book with Professor Jane Mankton Smith um, in which we concluded that uh, a woman killed, a married woman or a cohabiting woman killed by a partner has a very low status when, in terms of homicide. And you know, there's been other studies done on this. The status of women killed in domestic abuse is not high. It does not attract headline news. It does not attract necessarily the sympathy of the society. You'll hear people in the local shop saying things like, oh, what happened there? They were such a lovely couple. He was an absolute pillar of the community. She must have said something. Wow, oh, it's so sad. They, were, they got on so well not realizing that there may have been years of horrific abuse con coercive control which she had to keep hidden my sister had to keep that abuse hidden so i i don't think society knows the full horror of what's going on and we also um and this is a more sensitive topic but i think that we uh keep from society sometimes the the depths, uh, uh, the extent of depravity around these murders, the horrors, the overkill, um, you know, uh, the brutality and the, um, uh, the, the hatred associated with multiple stabbings and, you know, scores and scores and scores of stabbings, even though the body is dead. Yeah, I mean, it's it makes the hairs stand up on the back of your neck when you talk about that, and really does. Um I mean, you know, in, in this time that we are right now in the UK, it's, you know, women are feeling very vulnerable, you know, with the Sarah Everett case. And, you know, at the moment, there's maybe there's plans about some sort of app that they might, Pretty Patel wants to put into use. Um, but I've heard a lot of women with very, you know, um, convincing arguments saying basically why it'd be useless, why they wouldn't want to use an app. Um, and so on and so forth and you know here we are three three men on this um you know on this chat right now and and this is not to say that men don't suffer from domestic abuse and i do want to get into that with you as well mm -hmm. um but whilst we're on the topic of, of women as the victims you know what is it that that we can look out for amongst our own friendship groups um that you know because i'm very strong on the fact of you know uh, that we should be policing ourselves um i come from it from a sexual abuse point of view where that's kind of the hill that i do that i'm willing to die on um that we can police our own friends to stop it getting to a point where a, a woman is sexually abused um but what can we do I i'll admit that i'm fairly ignorant when it comes to to domestic abuse and i, I maybe wouldn't know what the the subtle tell tell signs are and to look mm. out for amongst my friends um so yeah what is it that someone who's listening to this what is it that we could maybe do more as men to help women feel safer in this society well we can stand up to other men 
that are um, uh, being horrific about women, and that goes on constantly. But we can also listen to women and make ourselves available to listen to women and listen properly, uh, and that means with mouth closed and two ears open. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it's the subtle behaviours of somebody. They might send signals or they seem to be unable to come to many events or they have to leave early. Or they say, you know, he's, he said, I need to be back by a certain time or, his, or her phone is being monitored. So I think it's really opening our minds. And actually, I would say to men, do what I didn't do before my sister and nephew were murdered. Google domestic abuse and get yourself educated on it. You know, there's tons of stuff out there that enables you to, to look out for stuff. So I, I'm just joining a project now in um, uh, in Wearside, uh, in the north of England, where we're doing work to educate families and the public to help them help their siblings or daughters, etc., that are suffering domestic abuse. And, and I'm so chuffed to be in this project because that's exactly what I've wanted to do, help other brothers, sisters, etc., who who suddenly find one of their families suffering abuse, how do I help them? What to say? And many years ago, there was a leaflet I found. Um, it was produced by, I think it was the Greater London Domestic Violence Project. And I always remember a line that came out of the leaflet and it said something like, if somebody approaches you about domestic abuse or you suspect it, hang on and stay there for them. You might be the only person they told before they get killed. If they get killed that line has always stayed with me so you know if you ever think somebody's dropping a hint to you or you suspect it make yourself available to that person you know be um uh, be entrepreneurial about it you might have to make a safe space uh, if somebody suspects you know uh, that she's having an affair if she meets you or whatever so you might need to be creative and think about that yeah frank you mentioned the importance of deep listening and so often I kind of get frustrated at myself and and just the fact that we're living in a in a world where we 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 have the belief that we don't have time to be deep listening you know we 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 need to do that we need to do that. I can't really be here for that long sorry or oh, I want to bring this up um and I'm glad you brought that up uh, to the 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 information that you can gain when you have let go of the possibility of responding immediately. Like you said, you close that mouth. The information that you can gain is so much more than words. You, you start to see their body language. You start to see, you start to feel the tone in their voice. And you start to understand what, you start to understand and see the nuances between whether this thing is particularly important that the person is saying, or maybe it's, it's a bit more trivial, you know, maybe it's just a bit more about daily stresses. It's not about an overarching, like you say, terror. Um, and yeah, I guess like I'm, I'm trying so hard, but I know, I know to, to really listen to people, to really, to really be there for people. Well, no, just look, I'm a hypocrite. I'd love to be a great listener, but, but like most of us, I start off trying to listen and, and often not not I'm a good listener, so I'm not trying to claim any great credit to being a good listener, but um, I'm just saying, you know, we've all got to try and do that. I think it's, Jim... I think you know I, I, I Jim's actually one of my kind of inspirations when it comes to trying to be a good listener um, but I think in general um, I don't want to generalize too much but in general I think men find it harder to listen because I think when we we hear a problem or we hear someone is you know telling us about something an issue whether that is literally that they're something on their seat doesn't work or or something much more much deeper as men we always see it as a, something to fix and we try to come up with solutions at least in my case it's like oh okay i understand you told me this problem and now let me give you a solution or let me give you some advice or let's see how we can try to work this out and often i found you know like jim says if you actually just resist that urge and you just keep your mouth shut for maybe even two minutes longer than you would have liked to you often find that they just want to 
they just want to let it out. And sometimes just by doing that, you've actually helped them. You, by not saying anything at all, they go, oh, thank you for that chat. That's really helped me, you know? And I think that's something that maybe men in general find a bit harder than, I mean, I know just in experience when I talk to my female friends, they're much better listeners than a lot of my male friends. And that's not because my male friends don't want to help. If, if anything, it's sometimes the opposite. They almost want to help too much and they can't resist the urge to give advice or to try and find solutions. Um, sometimes, uh, um, sometimes I can listen to people's literal words too much when what they're actually saying is something behind those words that I don't always, you know, I'm trying to train myself to, to be better at that, but I don't always make the connection. Sometimes I just hear the actual words, but they're not what they're, they're, it's not those words that they're saying. Do you follow me? Absolutely. I, I know what you mean, Frank. Go ahead. It, but that's how we're trained you know we are products of our environment we're products of our society and whether it's that we're very busy and we have this huge schedule and that we don't have time to be reading in between the lines or we feel like we don't have time to be reading in between the lines it, it is something i think that we all have we could all dedicate a bit more time to um, and and just on, just on that i mean i think we 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 covered the fact that perhaps all of us can do a bit more in terms of helping the like ridiculously high rates of the domestic abuse and per, and perhaps also like like you said not perhaps like you said there are judicial uh, flaws that are not helping the families that are not helping people who are being who are being uh, subjected to this abuse I also wanted to ask you because I've seen and I think it's very special and powerful coming from some of your experience the fact that you are also acknowledging the role of trauma within domestic abuse, you know, um, how can we, how can we expect domestic abuse to dramatically decrease if perhaps we're not getting at the very, very core? And I mean, I'm not a trauma expert. I like to do a bit of reading around trauma, but you can't help but think that the majority of people who are killing and murdering and harming the people that they apparently love are somewhat traumatized. And I think it was great to see that y y you acknowledged that. Well, I'm not an expert in trauma either, and I'm really just beginning my journey to, to try and understand it, in, including my own trauma. Um, but I, I, I came across a quote by a criminologist called James Gabarino, and it was told to me by Professor Neil Webster, who's the world guru on um, domestic homicide reviews. And the quote went something like, um, most killers are um, traumatized children occupying the minds, bodies, and hearts of adult men. Now, uh, I don't know if that's true, but this guy is a criminologist who's interviewed hundreds of killers. We ought to listen and think about this. And um, whilst it does not in any way excuse the behaviours of anyone to be abusive, it's absolutely not. But we do have to think, you know, if we, if if that statement is true, it means continually the world is producing more and more traumatised children occupying the uh, minds, bodies, and hearts of adult men, and it, it will keep coming, won't it? So there, you know, if we accept at that point it is valid, then we ought to be addressing trauma in some way. It it just came to me um, that we we spoke briefly about restorative justice before the recording of the podcast, um, and listeners will know that we had a phenomenal conversation with Dr. Marie Keenan last year. I'd love to know how how you feel about the murder of of your sister and nephew now, and. W w your take on restorative justice and whether it's been helpful for you or the people that you've you've met on, on the journey. I, I think restorative justice can be problematic in domestic abuse, but I don't think that anyone can dictate to anybody else a way forward in life uh, for them that works. So one of our advocates, who's now retired, um, is still seeking uh, to enter restorative justice with the man who killed her brother because she remembers him when he was 
know, behaving normally, a good man. She wants to understand what, what changed him. I don't know if that will help her, but my my job is not to judge. My job is to help people and um, get them the best advice uh, uh, that they can to make sure they're taking the right steps that, that won't harm them and will help them. I, I'm not an expert in that. Um, so we would find somebody in restorative justice that if somebody wanted to do that, um, to enable that person to go down that path if they wanted, but with the right advice and help. For sure. And I, I think it's really important, Frank, that you, someone like yourself in your position with your you know, personal experience has the humanity to um, to look into that and, and, and to, to try to explore that more because, you know, we did a podcast with Dr. James Cantor where we were talking about <clears throat> um paedophilia and you know they're often considered the complete scum of the earth and the absolute lowest of the low i mean even in prisons you know murderers <laughs> would like to see themselves as above a paedophile and, and you'd have a lot of the public um would agree with that 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 image um and it, you know what dr james Cantor said to me is that he said you know it takes people who have who have suffered at the hands of paedophilia to almost use that jail free card to say i want to look into them as humans and to try and stop it at source because they're the only people who kind of can right the people who've really suffered at the hands of and you know you are one of those unfortunately you're in that demographic where you can say you know it's not you're not hypothesizing about feelings or anything you've you felt this firsthand and for you to have the strength of character to look into the humanity of these people rather than to just kind of cast them aside as monsters who should just spend eternity in prison and that's that and never be never considered anything more than that that that's where we find i think that's where change real change can come from and change in um public discourse political discourse um and and ultimately hopefully help decrease the numbers in domestic abuse and fatal domestic abuse because if you can stop it at source that's you know they always say prevention is better than cure and i, I truly believe that um i wanted to to ask you you know we spoke before about victims and we've throughout this podcast we've kind of not kind of we have we've basically portrayed women as the victims and, and men as the as the as the sole perpetrators but you i'm sure more than anybody will know that that can be flipped straight on its head and you could have maybe a female as the as the perpetrator and actually you can have the male as a victim and you know it's hard enough to get a young woman or, or a woman in general to come out and to offer and to seek help when they're being domestically abused but the one maybe stigma that they don't have to deal with is that no one would think or no one in their right mind i should say would think less of a woman being domestically abused by a man but yet there is a, a very obvious stigma um, about a man who is suffering domestic abuse and i can only imagine that if you are a man who's potentially listening to this who's suffering from domestic abuse or if you know anyone it must be so much harder to come out and to say that you're being domestically abused because you the, the kind of automatic response how are you gonna be domestically abused by your your girlfriend got man up you know what's she doing come on get a grip type deal all of that vernacular um how in your experience you know coming across cases and i'm sure you've come across cases where men have been the victims what can you just speak to us about that and maybe shed a light and, and kind of yeah i don't know yeah just talk to, to us about how that how that whole situation um entails well first of all let's be absolutely clear that the statistics for domestic homicide are very starkly that men tend to kill women uh, there are some men killed by women, but it's significantly, very largely, much less than the amount of women killed by men. So that's the first point to make. Uh, the second point to make is that the serious domestic abuse is more perpetrated by men on women than statistically by women on men. There are still men horrifically abused and there are still men killed. The numbers are much less. Yes, there is a stigma for men there, but also remember that domestic abuse isn't just about physical domestic abuse. It can be all sorts of um, psychological types of interventions, undermining, deliberately undermining, gaslighting, um, 
you know, reducing the self-esteem of, uh, diminishing them in front of friends and family, denying them access to, you know, ways of enlarging their life, if you like. The families of the perpetrators will be left reeling as well because they will, in most cases, I would understand, I would expect that they would never expect their son to be capable of doing such a thing and to find out that that that's their son, that's who they've cared for, that's who they've brought up. They might even feel a sense of responsibility. Um, and, and coming to terms with with that, that the reality of who your son is, as opposed to who you thought they might be, um, is devastating. I know in my own family, you know, the the family member who, who was a paedophile came out, eventually we found out that he is a paedophile. It shocked the whole family because you just thought, how can this man, the one that we all knew and loved, the the favorite uncle, how is he the paedophile? You know what I mean? And it, it, some people even rejected it. It was the shock was too much. So I, you know, again, I commend you for again the humanity of taking their taking them into account and trying to help them heal um, and not just focusing solely on the victims. Because I think whenever it's problems like this come across, we only think about the victims and and the victims' family maybe, and we kind of maybe almost put some guilt onto the the perpetrators families and love them of course in most cases they haven't they they have no um guilt at all and so I, I, yeah again i really thank you for for bringing up that point because it's a very important point and distinction to make and something that maybe we should take into consideration if we knew anyone in this case to maybe reach out to that perpetrators family and and see how they're dealing with it as well um for people maybe are not familiar your your brother um uh um committed suicide um now um do you think i don't know how how does he, he committed suicide and you said before this podcast that it was due to the stigma of is it was it depression that he was dealing with yeah how, how you said that you wanted to come on here and help if it, but if you help one person by having this conversation maybe reduce the stigma then that then that would be worthwhile for you um you know i'm sure many people are plunged into depression after you have something not even fatal domestic abuse but just domestic abuse in general are plunged into depression that as, as well comes with its own stigma um yeah, could you talk to us about your brother? Could you talk to us about the situation that led to him um, and taking his life? And 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 if there is, why do you think it? What's what? Why was the stigma so bad that he felt like there was no escape for him? Stupid. I was drinking a lot. I didn't know how to help him, but he was suffering from clinical depression. And uh, he emigrated to Ireland about six months before he died. And um, you know, we were in telephone contact, and I went over to visit him. And seven days before he did it. I remember our last conversation, I always remember Bill saying, Frank, you know, the stigma, the stigma of saying, you know, having mental health concern is what really was cutting into him and hurting him. And I always remember that, such a powerful line. And, you know, I often think today when, when, when you approached me and I thought about this, I thought, wow, if Bill was alive today, that stigma wouldn't be there and he could work through it. And there's all these people that perhaps are not seeking help because they fear the stigma, you know, come forward and seek help. You know, I have mental health concerns. I suffer from anxiety. I have some OCD. I gave up drinking and joined a 12-step program. So, you know, I, I know about addiction. And if that's not a mental health problem, what is? Mm. So, you know, I am there as well. But, you know, I try to get help. I have clinical supervision. Uh, I have a loving family. I have good friends who, some who special friends that know about trauma and mental health difficulties and have shared with me ways forward and pointed me in the direction of sources of help, etc. So it seems much more open today that people can talk about mental health. And I mean, the challenges of COVID as well on top, you know, and uh, other challenges of really challenged my mental health I'm, I'm still standing but I've, I've undoubtedly been affected by it mm, and yeah. uh, I'm sure it's affected my behaviors and you know my productivity or what have you and you know my well-being sometimes because well-being doesn't last forever I have I cry I have really low days I have really down times when I just have to be alone and 
it's not till I'm climbing back up that I can seek company. And um, I always remember one of the kindest things that happened to me recently, and it's just a tiny thing. But I think if we can do this for other people, then I think we're opening the way for people to be authentic about how they're feeling. So I was meeting a, a, a female friend for, for dinner and um, I texted her in the day that, you know, I I was a bit down from some difficulties and but I would really try and cheer up for when we met. And I got the most amazing text back, you know, which, which made me cry when I first got it. And it said, no, be yourself. Come with how you're feeling. You know, that's what friendship is. And I thought, wow, wow, what an act of kindness. Opening the door for me to be authentic and to say exactly how I'm feeling. Mm. I didn't have to achieve some kind of false cheerfulness. I could just be who I was. What an amazing act. It sounds small, but with a powerful resonance. And it made me think, I've got to do that for someone else now. You know, if we could all do that, would we be giving permission for people? Because, you know, you know, the general narrative is, you know, that's that thing that you see on Google. Um, laugh, they laugh with you, cry and you cry alone. That's the kind of uh, narrative that's given to people. You have to be happy. You have to be good company for people to want to be around you. Well, of course, it's good to be good company, but it doesn't reflect the reality of life, you know. Sadness doesn't last forever, thankfully, and well-being doesn't last forever. You know, they, they move uh, in cycles or or randomly or whatever, you know, but they, they change. So isn't it better that we just face that reality and allow people to be themselves? So, you know, that, that had a big effect on me and um, makes me want to do that for others, you know. And look. I'm not trying to make out I'm going to be a great man because I'm going to do that for others. I've got a rubbish memory, so I'm going to have to be reminded of it. But I hope I am reminded of it because I want, you know, it's important to do that for people. Frank, I love hearing you speak. I, I love the emotion you bring. I love the fact that you are so open with the fact that you're just a flawed human trying to do good for other people, trying to do good for yourself. And some days I'm going to be sad and some days I'm not going to be sad. Um. And I think that's us. That's all of us. We're all flawed. We're all, you know, sometimes some of us are better actors than others, but we're all flawed. And the closer we can get to accepting that we are all flawed, the less likely we are to judge other people and the less likely we are to judge ourselves. Um, I thought it would be interesting to note for listeners that I think this is the 79th episode. Frank is the first guest to respond to our question, what's the crack? And he, and he said, all good. And then he said, actually, no, that's bullshit. Let's start again. <laughs> and, that, and that is Frank's level of commitment to trying to be more honest and tell him, hey, it's never all good. And he's right. It's never all good. <laughs> but I thought listeners would enjoy that. I, Frank, if you want, we can edit that out. <laughs> but... No, that's the reality, and, and, and I'm learning more and more that, you know, be who you are, be authentic, bring the downsides as well, bring the upsides, um, you know, and, and, and to give space for other people to do that too. It's beautiful, Frank. You know, it reminded me of uh, a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with someone that I really, really trust, and I was talking about someone that I deeply care about, and I was talking about how they were having difficulties, and they were quite sad, and maybe a bit like Seb mentioned earlier I was thinking of how could I potentially you know mitigate this sadness and then the person told me you know sometimes James we're sad you know sometimes we're sad it's, it's the terms and conditions of being a human and yeah I, I thanks thanks for reminding me that because we're gonna have sad days it's it's a very sad you know Sometimes it's a, it feels like a very sad existence. Um, and I think we owe it to ourselves to feel that. You know, I think it's amazing that you speak how speak how you cry a lot. You know, a lot, a lot of us, a lot of men in particular, we, come, we become a bit numb. You know, a lot of men can't remember the last time they cried. And why is that? You know, is it's not because they haven't felt, you know, been sad, is it? Or it, has it 
they they've just numbed themselves from the sadness. And I guess that's a that's 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 for another avenue for another day. But I I do want to really really thank you for this this level of of open open and honesty that you're bringing to this, particularly because of the difficulty you've had. And I'm very confident that somebody listening will take something from this. And I'm re I really hope we can we're definitely going to dedicate this podcast to your brother and to your sister and to your nephew and um yeah, I have a very good feeling that this will help a lot of people in, in a myriad of ways so I, I do want to thank you is is there anything we've missed that I, you know I would hate to think that we've um we've bid you farewell without without maybe um, giving you the opportunity to get something off your chest or to maybe share some information that maybe some people might find useful or maybe we haven't asked them certain questions that you wanted to give us insightful answers for so is there anything we've missed that you would you'd want to um, tell us before we before we end up yeah you asked how do you take care of your own mental health mm. would be a good one to ask me i think um and, uh, yep. Yeah. If you ask me that one, yeah. So how, yeah. Yeah. So how? What is it? What? What are the tricks? What are the Frank Milan tricks that we can um, we can uh, we can take up home for us? Well, first of all, um, how do I look after my own mental health? Well, first of all, I was completely ignorant of how to do that. Okay, I never had a clue. I just kept walking forward and, and didn't know. Um, so before I gave up drinking, I thought drinking was, was helping me instead of destroying me until I realized, uh, well, until other people realized it wasn't that I had some great kind of um, uh, intuition. Um, I have a loving family. Um, I cry. I like to cry. And sometimes when I can't induce it, I put on a video of injustice, like when Susan Boyle, was on Britain's Got Talent and the audience rubbished her because she looked, didn't look, you know, like the <laughs> traditional models. And then she opened her mouth and they loved her. And I thought, oh, how false is that? They're only loving her because she's got a lovely voice. So that makes me cry. <laughs> and, you know, things like that when you see that. So sometimes I'll put that video on to induce a few tears because a few tears is a good thing. I've got a very supportive family. Um, I, my younger sister and my late brother were both Samaritans and they always said to me, Frank, um, you don't have to be suicidal during the Samaritans. You just need to chat. I get lonely. I get out of perspective on things. I have clinical supervision, which I love, but I, I do ring the Samaritans, um, you know, and, and have chat to somebody. There are times when I can't sleep maybe and, uh, I live alone, I'm single, and um, sometimes I just need to hear a voice and uh, talk things through. And um, sometimes I roar, I just roar, and that feels good as well, especially if you're on a mountain or something. But sometimes I do it in the house and maybe the neighbours wonder what's going on. But I live alone and, you know, you just do these things. So do whatever you need to do. Don't just, don't deny it to yourself. We're all human and it's a, as one of my great friends says, it's not a straight road and uh, it's a rocky road, isn't it? And um, there are plenty of challenges thrown at us and, you know, please seek help and talk about it um, and watch out for other people. Beautiful. That's beautiful, Frank. I, I, I think we, we racked up some, some new additions. I mean, we've had a lot of guests on. We've had a huge amount of various uh feedback uh, uh ways in which people look after their health but it's lovely to hear that you have your own unique set of actions that you can do to make you feel a bit better and you and again i just want to harp home about this because listen like you're older than me and seb you know i don't want to ask how old you are it's not important but the fact that you're doing this I can I can say that the amount of people I know over 50, the amount of men I know over 50 that are speaking about mental health like you are, I could count on one hand. And that's not that's not criticizing anybody. It's not it's it's just it's fantastic that you're doing this. And I know that this could give the courage to many other men and many other women and many other people that the fact that you're doing this is huge. Also, Frank, I, we, we, I, before before we let you go, I wanted to talk just a bit more about the work that you're doing in Avda. And, of course, on the Earthly Delights podcast, we judge people by the size of their hearts 
and nothing else. However, <laughs> you have been awarded a pretty special prize and I think we should note that also. But it would be fantastic to hear about the progress that your, your organization has made, how many, how many families and how many people you're touching and can someone ring now in someone based in the uk or can someone in ireland even check out your website is some of the information beneficial for them we'd, we'd love to hear a bit about this yes so the website is like www thing and then after which is advocacy after fatal domestic abuse so uk. that will take you to the website and uh, uh people can contact the number or an email address on there um uh, if they need help and there's resources on there to help people as well um we're helping uh, hundreds of families in both homicide and have over the years there's uh, 17 of us now we're thinking after so there's a team of advocates and we have other person operations manager training business development and stuff because we also provide uh, a lot of training we provide the national accredited training to chair domestic homicide reviews, for example, and some other forms of training. And I'm very lucky because I get lots of opportunities to speak, um, sometimes uh, in, in, in Europe, sometimes in America, not that often because COVID knocked it on the head. But um, you were talking earlier about catharsis. Uh, there is catharsis. And I, and I remember something else right at the beginning when I started um, uh, even before I started after, other charities took hold of me and, and I spoke at, at events for them, but they they literally, not literally, but they bathed me in compassion. You know, I felt really well looked after. They put me up in a hotel, loads of pats on the back, you know, they thanked me and I just felt loved by them. And it was an amazingly warm feeling. And I remember having this idea that if I can get hold of some money, I just want to start a, another charity where, and with families that have murder, I'm just going to, if they want to go on a speaking circuit, I'm going to put them up in nice hotels every time for a few nights. Just comfort and care, you know, love, comfort and care. Sometimes, sometimes you just need that rather than the, um, the justice side. You, you also need the care side. Beautiful. It's powerful for sure. We also um, take families away for three or four nights uh, to a nice place. Um, it has to be nice food. It, uh, we, one of our advocates is a chef um, as well. So it's, it's good food. And we have events and just chit chats. And there's a long communal table, which 24 can sit at. We have a sense of community, swapping stories. Um, we've had uh, uh, an international musician join us, um, our ambassador, you can see on the website, and, and play music for us. Um, it's all about community and healing, building building bonds and networks um, after the destruction of murder. I mean, murder is so destructive and it takes so much away and it steals futures from people. And we have to try and replace those futures with something that's... Um, bearable and livable and um you know still have good lives definitely really appreciate all your time frank and listen we'll put all of the links in in all the show in the show notes so for anyone who who maybe has some more questions that maybe we didn't um ask or want some more answers you'll find everything that frank's up to and, and all of his great work will be in the show notes so make sure to look there um and, and pass the pod on if you think this may be of help to anyone who's maybe currently suffering um, of domestic abuse or or anything of, of that ilk. Um, I just want to just just really take the time just to thank you for coming on, Frank. It's um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a special podcast, and I really really appreciate your time and and your honesty in in you know in in telling us what you went through and and what your family's been through. It's nothing short of traumatic, but we um, we appreciate your honesty uh, on the podcast. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. I want to thank you both for the opportunity and uh, uh, for standing up against domestic abuse and, and for doing something around mental health. And uh, I, I'm chuffed you guys are doing this. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to be part of it. Good luck, Chair. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. And pl please 
please keep uh, keep our email exchange going. Oh yes, definitely, please. <laughs> Hi guys, thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week, but until then, keep safe and have a good one.